church. Let's open up to uh, the book of First John. This week, we are going to finish uh, this book. We've been sort of hammering it out for the past few months, and uh, we're going to bring it uh, to its end today, um, where I'm going to attempt to, uh, what I believe uh, verses 14 and 15 in chapter 5 are some of the most difficult verses to interpret in the entirety of the New Testament with the Hebrew passages being excluded uh, from that list. And so we're going to wrestle with this and uh, see what, what God has in store for us. Uh, it is daylight savings time. Uh, can we uh, just all agree that we're all in, in this political season searching for a candidate that is going to run on one premise that he's going to put an end to this nonsense and it's just gonna be like, like, I'll vote for that guy, right? Like we, we can unite the parties. Like this is how we do this, right? Uh, we just need to destroy this and be done with it. And it just needs to be like this uh, year round, 100%. Uh, this is always the Lord's day, but it's the worst day of the year uh, because of that. And uh, Haley and I were joking last night, uh, you know, we, we get the email notifications and everybody's saying, you know, set your clocks, you know, forward, don't miss. But I don't know if it's a millennial thing or a zennial thing, but like I haven't set an alarm clock in 20 years. I don't even know how to do that, I don't think, because my phone just does it automatically, right? Like there's no fear of sleeping in because the phone automatically, it, it just does that. So, um, you know, uh, the world in which we live in is raging with uncertainty, primarily because of what has recently been identified as a pandemic around the world, the coronavirus. And I was asked this week by a friend of mine uh, what I plan to do as a pastor, what kind of advice that I, that I plan to give to the church um, about the coronavirus. And my response to that was really simple. Um, I'm not a medical physician and I'm in no position to be giving medical advice to you from the pulpit. But I do wanna sort of give us a, a slight bit of pastoral advice, and then we'll, we'll tie this into the message, I promise. Our posture as believers in Christ in the midst of this pandemic and people being marked, so to speak, with this virus, our posture because of scripture and because of who we believe and what we believe about him is a posture that is just simply being described that it should be faith over fear. We have to make sure that we are portraying a posture, even as believers, <clears throat> not naive to the world and what's going on, but a posture that exists that we're going to walk forward in faith. And so you have demonstrated that faith this morning by being here. Did you know that the CDC recommends that if you are going to prevent yourself from getting the coronavirus, you are to maintain a, a physical distance of six feet at all times with any other human being to prevent yourself. So many of you are in violation of that right now. And so what that means is you've, you're probably infected already, okay? With the exception of the few back row Baptists that we have uh, that are here, today is the day where it pays to be a back row Baptist. But our posture is gonna be faith over fear. And the second thing I wanna say to you is this, is that it ought to be doctors over pundits. Some of us need to turn the TV off and quit listening to the news and quit listening to the political experts politicizing this in a lot of different ways on both sides. This is the reason why I'm not here to give you medical advice because I'm not an MD. And so I called my physician and said, what should I do? And I listened to him and I, I'm gonna heed his response in doing that. It's doctors over pundits every single time. And then the third thing I'm gonna tell you just real quickly and we're gonna jump in is be responsible and be 
reasonable. We, uh, Haley and I did a, an order. We, we love the fact that um, HEB delivers groceries to where we live. And it's a phenomenal game changer for us. Like I will never have to go to the grocery store ever again. And that is amazing. And we put in an order and, and they came and delivered. And uh, the young lady who delivered the groceries, uh, Haley had asked her just, is it being busy right now? She said, you have no idea about how rampant things are and people ordering. Uh, I saw on, on eBay this week, if you wanted to buy hand sanitizer, you would have paid $160 for a big bottle of hand sanitizer. People are, are being incredibly irresponsible and incredibly unreasonable with this. And so I wanna encourage us as a church to maintain a, a reasonable response and a reasonable posture to gather all the facts, but to not walk in a, in a posture of fear, but rather one in faith. Now you may be asking, how does this have anything to do with what's going on in 1 John? Well, it has a lot to do with it, primarily from the fact that John gives us some markers. Just like you can be marked as someone that has fear or faith with the viruses that are going around, he gives us some markers to know whether or not we have been saved and called and redeemed by God. In all of 1 John's letter, it has basically led us to this place where we're gonna get to one verse, which is really the summary of the entire book of 1 John, that I could have saved us two months of teaching and preaching and just read this one verse and said, if you get this verse, this is what the entirety of the book is all about. And so what I want you to do is look with me at verse 13, where the text says this, <coughs> excuse me, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Friend, did you know that there are, I know this for a fact, that there are some of you out there that you didn't know the fact that God wants you to be certain that you are born of the Spirit of God and are walking with him in relationship, in a posture of security that is certain, not in a posture of uncertainty. That God desires and he wants all of his children, all of his faith family to understand the truth that we can know that we have eternal life and we can be certain that we have been born of the Spirit of God. And I would say this to you, that this idea of, of whatever you want to call it, perseverance of the saints or, or, or being eternally secure, it is one of the most foundationally crucial doctrines to understand and to grab hold of. Because it is out of this posture of security that we develop this understanding of, of knowing how much God loves us because oftentimes our understanding of our relationship with God is more, it more has to do with how, whole, how hard we are holding on to him. When the reality of the gospel and all throughout scripture is a fundamental truth that our salvation has nothing to do with how we're hanging on, but rather how God is hanging on to us. And his grip is eternal and it is secure. And God's desire for his people is that we would walk in a posture of security in the relationship that we have with him. I write these things to you so that you will know that you may have eternal life. And I've got several kids and you can imagine that the next time that I go away on a trip, 
What if as I was walking out the door and my kids were saying goodbye and they were hugging and they were kissing and they were saying, we're going to miss you, dad. And I made the statement, you know what, guys, I'm not sure that I'm going to come back. In fact, I'm not even sure that I'm your real dad. In fact, I may have another family somewhere on the other side of the world and and I may decide to go that direction and may never decide to come back to you ever again. Now go talk to your mom and, and go ask her some questions. It'd be a really weird relationship dynamic if if I treated my kids that way, that there was this opportunity at some point for me to step out of the relationship or to create uncertainty in my relationship with my kids. Yet more often than not, as a pastor, I see this on a regular basis, believers who are walking with God, who are uncertain about their walk with God and their salvation. And they approach it sort of with this posture of, of great uncertainty and, and unknown. Like, I don't know if I, if I mess up or I make a mistake or, or I trip up. The reality is, is that God desires for his people to be secure in their relationship. To put it another way, real love grows in the soil of security. That if you want to develop a, a relationship with your children, that I want my kids to know that I deeply love them and deeply care for them. And then I'm all about building a relationship with them and growing that relationship and so that they have security and that I'm their dad, that I'm never gonna leave, that I'm never gonna walk away from them. And so it's why fundamentally when we say that the entirety of, of John's letter could be reduced to this one verse where he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of the God so that you may know with certainty that you have eternal life. Real love grows in the soil of security. He says elsewhere in John's gospel, he says this, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish ever. No one will snatch. No one will take them abruptly. No one will rob them out of my hands. My father who has given me, given them to me is greater than all. No one, no one, no thing, no sin, no person, no circumstance is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. God's desire for his people is to have certainty in their relationship with him. Fundamentally, one of the, the basic tenets of this, we, we came out of an environment before we came to Travis where, where we were in a, a subculture of, of Christianity, so to speak, that, that for whatever reason within this particular denomination, there was this overarching viewpoint that, that you could fall away and lose your salvation. And I was constantly having to counsel and to go back and say, but what about this? And and what about this? And and what about this scripture? And typically they would run to to places that we'll see elsewhere here in 1 John. And they'll, they'll run to a few other places to sort of make this argument. And at the end of the day, my posture was always this, is that, is that we're on the, on the verge very quickly of a works-based salvation and performance-driven salvation by seeking to to continually earn the favor and the pleasure of God by what we are doing. But at the same time, some of us Baptists that hold to the doctrine of eternal security need to reckon with the idea that we should not take grace for granted, that we shouldn't abuse it and we shouldn't cheapen the grace that God has given us and make assumptions about our walk with God and abuse the relationship and the security that he gives. Because if we do that, 
And we find ourselves in this posture where I, I can do anything and God is going to forgive me. The term in the scholarly world is, is you become what's known as an antinomian. And what that means is, is that, that I can do anything I want and God will forgive me. Therefore, I'm going to do anything I want because I am covered in the grace and in the love and in the well-being of God in Christ. And friend, I want to I tell you this. If that is our attitude towards our relationship with God, then there ought to be great concern and there ought to be a great pause in wondering and asking the question whether or not we actually know God. If our posture is, I'm going to try to get away with as many things as I possibly can, then what we need to do is, is to call time out and, and to take a breath. And then I think legitimately, we need to begin to ask the question, have I really been changed and captivated by the love and the mercy of God? And has he really gotten a hold of me? If we continue to follow the logic of the text, we see in verse 14, after he talks about this eternal security, he says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. Notice he says that if we ask anything according to his will, God hears us. So the first premise in verse 13 is that we can know that we have eternal life. And the second premise in the text is that we can know that God hears and responds to our prayers. But I wanna point out a couple of things in verse 14. I want you to notice first at the very end of the text when he says that if we ask anything and he will hear us, there's a condition there. And the condition in the text is what? We ask according to his will. When we ask and when we pray and when we seek for outcomes and circumstances that are according to his will, he hears us and he responds. And so here's the dilemma of, for the Christian. Here's the dilemma of the person that's walking with Jesus. It's simply asking, Lord, is the thing that I'm praying, is the thing that I'm asking for, Lord, help me align my will and my vision and my dream and my want and help me align it with the thing that you want. That I want whatever this outcome is, as difficult as it may be, Lord, let that outcome be your will and help me trust you in the midst of it. But notice in the beginning of verse 14, he says this, not just praying according to how he hears us in his will, but he says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. This is the confidence. In the Greek, it means this freedom of speech and it means this boldness. And so the text could, could literally be read and this is the, the boldness, the freedom of speech that we have when we come to our heavenly father. And, and the best way that I know to illustrate this is um, Hadley, uh, my daughter, my, one of my, my younger daughters, she used to do this more often than, than all the rest of my kids. And I'm not bitter that they don't still do this, but, but it's one of my favorite things. In, in my living room, um, I, have, uh, I have what's known as the dad chair. Who's got a dad chair in your house? Like this is where dad sits, dad's recliner right? Usually a lazy boy or something. Like, this is where dad sits. And when dad is not in the living room, you're free to sit on it. But when dad enters the living room, what happens? Hey, get up, right? You're in dad's chair, okay? And so I have a chair. I have this little recliner and it is typically where I go to sit. Well, when Hadley was younger, I would sit in this chair. And one of the things that she would do when she would see me in this chair, if she wasn't making crafts or doing something or chasing her brother or doing something like that, Hadley used to run up to me 
with confidence and with boldness. And she would jump in my lap and she would sit in my lap and just want me to wrap my arms around her and just hold her. And, 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 and all she wanted was just to, to be with dad. I'm gonna sit with dad. I'm gonna sit in dad's chair. This, this place of, of supposed honor in the Erickson household, right? Like I'm just gonna be with dad. And there's this confidence there. There's this, uh, there's this frankness in, in speech. Um, and it's just this security that exists within the relationship. Didn't ask me for anything, didn't want anything, didn't say, go buy me this, go do this for me. It was just simply this desire to be with her father. And I think that's kind of the idea of the text when he says, and this is the confidence and the freedom and the boldness that we have with God. Of not necessarily... It's okay to run to God and to ask him for things. Scripturally, we, we have that permission to be able to do that. But we have this freedom and, 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 and this expression, this confidence to approach God with, with boldness and, and with confidence. Why? Because we know in verse 15 that he hears us in whatever we ask and we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. But notice what happens in verse 16 because this is where it sort of gets a little weird. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin and not leading to death, he shall ask and God's going to give it, give him life. And so the question that the scholars wrestle with here is, is God referring to a physical death or is he referring to a spiritual death? And depending on what you decide and what you think the text is arguing, it can lead you down a, a variety of paths to, to understanding. And, and so, so what is it that he means here? In this moment, in verse 16, where he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, what I think he means in this moment, based on the Greek and the grammar and all the things that are going on, I think he's referring to a spiritual death in this moment. Because here's his argument, and, and follow with me. His argument is that if a brother or a sister um, is in Christ, they can certainly fall into sin, but their salvation is not at stake if they do it. But rather, what he has in mind is, is this idea that, that listen, though we have been um, made holier, we're being sanctified by God, our, our process of being perfected is not over yet. And so the Christian is not going to be perfect. The Christian is going to make mistakes. The Christian is going to falter. But rather what he has in mind is this, this simple idea that though if I continue to habitually persist in my sin and I keep running back over and over and over again, then the warning that exists within the text and the spiritual death is, is typically for the individual of the sin that leads to death that we see here. But if you see someone in sin, I want you to notice who he's talking to here. He's talking to the church and he's calling the church to a posture of prayer for people who are stumbling. And so here's the thing that we need to learn from this. The first response when we see a brother or sister stumble is not to talk about the brother or sister that's stumbling, but rather the command in the text is as we watch and see our brothers and sisters stumble, rather than talk about them, we talk to our God with them and we go before the Lord and we pray first. 
And we ask God to intercede. We ask God to convict. We ask God to change. We ask God to restore. The first posture for the believer is not to gossip or not to talk about, oh, look what they're doing. The first place that we go when we see a brother or sister in sin is we go before the Lord and we say, God, intervene in their life. Change them. Because too often what I see is oftentimes eager brothers and sisters in Christ that that run to the other brother or sister to confront the sin, which there's a place for that, but they have not sought the counsel and the wisdom of God and not sought the, the filling of the Holy Spirit in their life to look for the right time and the right words to say and the right approach to be able to do that. And so God's call here and his command is is clear. When we see him committing this sin, leading, not leading to death, and he shall ask and God will give him life. And so we go to the Lord to pray. But then the text goes on. He says, but there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And what is the sin that leads to death? There are three views that are taken by some good guys on, on every side of the aisle. The first view is this, there's a specific deadly sin that exists. What what this means is there's this high-handed sin. It's a sin that is willful and deliberate. Uh, It's a sin of a very serious nature. F.F. Bruce, uh, one of the smartest guys to ever live. He's passed away. He was a famous New Testament scholar. Um, You seminary students that are out, anything that F.F. Bruce writes, you should read it. You should devour it quickly. F.F. Bruce says this, he, he sees the death referred to here in the text, um, similar to what we see in Acts 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, they, they just fall because they, they lied about what they gave and, and, uh, and their giving. He says there's another place in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where there's an incestuous man who, who is put to death or when, when the Corinthians are, are threatened because they are abusing the Lord's Supper. And there is this habitual pattern that exists within their life, this specific deadly sin. This is the sin that leads to death. The second option is what we call just blaspheme or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we see this in two specific places, Matthew 12, 32, where he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That's a very serious statement. What in the world does he mean? Mark 3, 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. So what in the world does this mean? I think it it lends itself to this understanding of this sin that leads to death. Again, it's this deliberate, knowledgeable, and and willful, constant rejection of truth. So, So here's the out. You cannot accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit unto death. Like you don't do that by mistake, right? So like God's not trying to catch you and, and oh, he blasphemed, he's out. Sin to death, he's out of here. That's not how that works. But rather, this is a posture of an individual who over and over is is knowledgeable about their their willful and, and their verbal continual rejection of the truth as it is being laid out before them, before the text. How do you know if you've committed this? You ever wondered that? There's a simple answer. If you've committed this sin, you are already dead. And if you were already dead, we are living in the midst of the sixth sense, okay? Or we see dead people. If you've done this sin, it means you're not here anymore. 
And so the concern oftentimes is, is, is how do I know if I've committed it? Well, listen, if it hasn't led to death, then the opportunity for you to repent is still present. What if, what if I've sinned so much that I've, I've hardened my heart? Listen, if you just come to the place where you're like, Lord, soften my heart, or you're recognizing that your heart is being hardened towards the things of God, as long as you want to repent, you always can. You always, you always can. Years ago, we experienced a death in a church that we served at, and the death was, was tragic. It was, um, it was too soon, but the individual who passed was openly living in a, in a way that, uh, just to be honest, like it wasn't honoring the Lord, and everybody knew it in the community, and, and it was obvious. And in the midst of that death, uh, there was a well-meaning individual who who ran to this verse in particular, and the statement was made, they, they meant well, but, but just, this is what they said. Well, I mean, obviously they, they, did, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit or they did the sin that, that led to death, and so God took them. And I think their motive was, let's, let's be biblical and let's frame this stuff, but, but listen, um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a time and a place and certainly after someone's death, you, it, you may think that, but, but there's one of those things where you can think it, but do not open your mouth or say it in front of the grieved. Go tell it to a closet wall in a dark space. Because the truth is, even if you're right in your speculation, you and I, we are not God and we do not know, ultimately. And it's never our place. Because we're, we're not prophets of God. God's not speaking. He, he already has spoken in, in this, and this is where we get our understanding. And so it's one of those situations where if you see someone pass prematurely, whether they committed the sin or not, let's avoid this posture at all possible costs. And instead of trying to answer the why, let's just focus on comforting the grief that are still present with us with the truth of his spirit and be a faithful presence to them. The third option is just simply a total rejection of the gospel. I think this is the most plausible alternative to this. Uh, This is outright individuals, false teachers primarily, because that's what this book has been about, addressing the false teaching in the church who are willfully and habitually just challenging the claims of Christ, challenging the deity of Jesus, they're, they're at him in, in every which way, outright have come to the conclusion, outright rejection, apostate. These are the individuals that he has in mind. <clears throat> and he goes on and he ends, and all wrongdoing or unrighteousness is sin that does not lead to this death. But I want to back up and I want to make sure that we get the larger picture to this because we sort of hone in on, on some of these, these values. And As we get to verse 15 and 16 and 17, I want to remind you that they are given in the context for prayer and not confrontation. All of what we just see in in asking and praying, all of this was, was given under the umbrella of verse 14, that according to his will, he hears us, then we go. And so it's given in this posture that we would be a people who are on our knees before a holy and righteous God, pleading and crying out for God to save those that are far from him, those that are wayward and and who have run astray. Notice what he says in verse 18. We know this victory. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. 
So there is a changed life, not that they won't sin, but they, that the regular patterns of their life exist so much so that they're not habitually walking in that sin. They're, they're experiencing freedom and they're moving forward together. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I love that, that word touch in the end that the ESV uh, translates. And, and it's this idea of the evil one, our adversary, this idea that he is unable to grab a hold with the intent to harm him and to pull him away. So the evil that exists within the world, the, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, the devil, we, we, the, he's the ruler of this world temporarily. He's not been given authority though. He's been given a, the, the ability to do a lot of things that, that we wish and we say, come Lord Jesus and end this. He does not have the ability to snatch or to take someone from the grip of God's hands and to remove them from salvation, but rather the one who continually persists in the sin. It's not that they have been snatched away, but rather they are demonstrating that they were never a part of the faith to begin with. They were never a part of the faith to begin with. He ends in verse 20 and 21 and he says, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him and who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in the eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from these idols. I love that part in verse 20. He says, and we know that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know and we can know what is true. I had this chair down front and um, I'm not a chair expert, but I'm pretty good at, at details and, and seeing things and um, kind of an old gray blackish chair. It's got some scuffs on it. It's got a, well, somebody's hair's falling out of their head. Somebody's going balding. Um, it's, got, it's got some scratches. It's got some screws on the back. Um, how many of you believe this chair would hold me up if I sat in it? I think it would, right? Some of you said, no, don't do it. It's a trick. I love this chair and, and we've got several chairs that, that are like this. And you know what? I, I'm so enthralled with this chair. Uh, I'm gonna have Joe Crenshaw um, write some songs so we can sing about this chair. It'd be pretty cool, right? I'm going to establish uh, and get a group of people. Uh, we're going to establish a circle. Christian and, and Getty are going to come join my group and Kirk Leach and uh, Cindy Wade. And, and we're going to form a circle because the pastor's talking about circles. And we're going to gather around this chair and we're going to talk about this circle. And we're going to talk about how this chair impacts our lives and, and the application that's there and how we can apply it and live and, and reach our city. We're going to form a circle around this chair. I'm gonna call Southwestern up and say, hey, um, I'd like to, to form a class at the master's level where we can study this chair. And I wanna know the, the Greek and, and the Hebrew. I wanna be able to parse the verbs that describe this. Um, there's a history book on chairs that, that we can get and, and where they were and, and where they came from and, and, and how close to the New Testament these chairs are. And, and is it really biblical to sit in a chair? Let's answer that question. So we're gonna sing about it, we're gonna study it, we're gonna, we're gonna learn about it, we're gonna love everything about this chair. 
but I can sing about it and I can know about it and, and I can invite people to come look at it and, and to root for it and to, and to champion it. I can color it. I can dress it up. I can change the fabric. I can fix the padding. I can do all of those things. But listen to me, until I actually sit in the chair, I don't know if it's holding me up or not. And so at some point, I've got to sit in the chair and I got to make sure that, that the chair is really going to do what it was designed to do. My friends, some of us here today have sung about Jesus. We can talk about him in, in Greek and Hebrew. We've read books about him. We, we, we sing songs, we, we go to our circles and our, our small groups and, and we love each other in the context of the chair being the center, but, but it, could it be true that some of us here today have never actually put our faith in the chair of righteousness, put our faith in the chair of Jesus and sat and trusted him? Like we love him and, and, and we sing about him because we love the, the culture of it. But I think it's, it's possible that, that maybe there are some of us here today that we so love the culture of Christianity that we have missed the Christ of Christianity. And we've never actually put our faith in him. Our mission as a church is to see people far from God come to know Christ. Every day we want to live that, breathe it, sweat it, bleed it. We want to see some of you come to know Christ for the first time. And the call to salvation is really a simple one. It's, it's about putting your faith and your trust in Christ to save you from your sins. We believe heaven and hell are, are real places. We believe God has given us a, a soul and a spirit that lives on in eternity. We believe at this church that we're not living for this world. We're, we're living for the world to come, that it's coming. And we want you to know the God that we sing about intimately so that you can know and be assured of your salvation. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't leave us wondering, you don't leave us in doubt. And so we pray now that your spirit would fall in this place, that we would respond in a manner that is worthy of your gospel. And Lord, if there are folks here that, that don't know you, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. They would tell their small group leader, they would tell one of the elders or one of the staff, come tell me that they, they desire to know Christ, to be saved from their sins, to know for sure. We pray that today would be their day. But Father, we pray for your church. God, that you would lead us in a posture where we would pray for those that are far from you. We want what we say and speak to, to match what we do in our private lives. We say we want to see the lost, those that are far from you say, but Lord, do we, do we pray accordingly? Burden our hearts, God. Burden us for the things that burden you. Help us, God, be a light in this city. Help us reach those that are far from you today. In Christ's name.
invite you at this time to stand with me. We're gonna have a time, brief time of response. If you don't know Christ, I'd love to talk with you about what that means. Maybe salvation will come to your house today. We would love nothing more than to see that happen. But church, for the rest of us, if you know Christ, my challenge to you as one of your pastors is this. Does your heart beat for the same things that God's heart beats for? And if not, let's begin to ask him to change us. Help us, God. We pray these things.